Let us worship God by continuing now in prayer together. Open us and quiet us to hear something from you, Holy One. Something from you, something real, something true. And then convert us that we might risk living into what we hear. For we pray in Christ's name, amen. So today we are on part two of a series looking at the seven aspects of the life of Riverside that the uh, uh, pastoral search committee has uh, been using to describe our church. You know that they, uh, part of their task is to produce an MIF, Ministry Information Form, that includes a fairly detailed description of who we are. And, and part of that is, who are we theologically? What is the flavor of this congregation in terms of what we stand for in our beliefs? Uh, some people might say we should go to the Ancestry.com site of churches and find our history and go back to the beginning, what was it, 1910, and look at how we have come from there and, and who our founders were. Some people think it's more important to look uh, and listen to who the people are right now. You, what do you believe? What is of core value to you? I, in fact, in fact asked that of several members of our church this past week, I asked them to tell me in 40 words or less, what is the core of your faith? Can you do that? Not easy to do for some people, for others, it's not too hard. We actually worked on that some in a Sunday school class today as well. And there are all kinds of answers, some with very traditional languages and theological categories, and some uh, using very contemporary language and ideas. All good stuff, very thoughtful. In fact, one of the reasons I love to be here in this church is because you are so thoughtful. This place is heavily populated with sound theologians who, who really have are keen observers of life and of faith and I respect you. So is there a core testimony here at Riverside that we agree on? We say uh, that uh, we have some openness, but how open should we be? Is it better to be clear about our core or open and questioning? How do you balance that? And is there a core testimony in the Bible? Or is it all over the map? As I was thinking about these, some of these questions, I started thinking about the texts that I would like to uh, read today. And that I, I would have loved to have read many more, but I had to narrow it to two. And so these are the two that for me are very important. Um, I can't say the most important, but they're right up there. And uh, so we're going to listen to two texts from Deuteronomy 6 
and Ephesians 1, I think both foundational, both expressing a part of the core of the testimony of the Bible. So let us listen now for God's word to us from Deuteronomy and Ephesians. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Teach them to your children. Write them on the doorposts of your heart and on your gates. That is the Shema, the centerpiece of the worship of the Jewish people. They were to read and pray that twice a day, every day. It literally means to judge yourself, to look within at your relationship with God. And what I hear it saying is that God is one, uncomparable, indivisible. God is one and God is personal, transpersonal to be sure, but not just a cosmic force or historical movement, but in some way personal. God is love. God wants relationship with creation, is in relationship with all of creation. And there is a, the word command invites response, obedience to the voice of God. These things are all right here and I think are pretty much at the core of biblical faith. The oneness of God, the indivisibleness of God, the personalness in the midst of the transcendence of God, the love of God and the call to follow. And now here is the New Testament lesson from Ephesians. And this is from uh, Paul writing to that church. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, just as he chose us in Christ. In Christ, we have redemption, forgiveness, the riches of God's grace. And with all wisdom and insight, God has made known to us the mystery of God's will according to his good pleasure in Christ, a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Again, it's a prayer. Prayers often reveal our theology, or at least our aspirational theology, our our hopeful theology. Sometimes we pray fake prayers that, that maybe don't reveal much of anything about us. But if we're honest in our prayers, then we get down to what we really believe. And for Paul, it's about all things, all people being brought together 
by Christ. That is the work of Christ. Christ is the center and the circumference. And that and in that we are loved and lavished with grace and promised new life. These scriptures for me are at my core. They are among the very most important for me to understand biblical faith. How about you? What are your most important scriptures and why? The search committee in their work, I'm going to quote a couple pieces from their uh, from their work that describe us. I wonder if you agree. And by the way, this, has, this hasn't even been voted on by the session, so I probably should be reading this. I'll probably be whatever, but, and here we go. Uh, <clears throat> we, talking about us now, we are firmly grounded in our beliefs, and we are also open to seekers who have different ways of finding God in our world. Is that true? You think that's true? Is that true of us? Are we firmly grounded? Are we open to seekers who have different ways of finding God? It goes on, we come to Riverside knowing that we may be drawn out of our comfort zones, but also knowing that we have shared faith and values that will help us to confront the controversies of the day and to act together to resolve them. So do we have shared faith and values that help us to act in the world? It sounds solid just the way I would think that committee would write. Very balanced. Uh, it reminds me though of a, of a joke about um, the Pope who Pope uh, comes and, and makes a, a, has a news conference and he says, I've received a word from God. Jesus is coming back again very soon. And Jesus is going to bring together the kingdom. And the first thing that Jesus is going to do is he's calling a big convocation of all the churches and denominations to bring us back together in unity. That's the good news. I do have some bad news. The convocation is going to be held in Salt Lake City. <laughs> so how important is it to have a core identity that sets us apart? And is that even a good thing? I was talking with uh, one of our young adults recently, uh, one who doesn't attend church anymore. And she said, you know, the thing is, uh, I, I like the theory of church. I like its ideas. It's the practice that leaves me cold. And I really think that we've heard that before in many places. It's, it's like we know that the church has been very good at writing theology 
at study, at education, at trying to get things put down right. But as the church has focused on orthodoxy, it has not always served us well. We've sometimes been so focused on correctness when flexibility would have been more fruitful. Judgment, we've been judgmental when compassion was needed. Now I'm not saying there's not a place for good theology, and I'll get back to that in a minute. I, was, I want to tell you first a story about a, a friend of mine, a pastor, who uh, was uh, taking some uh, vacation, and on his vacation he visited another church and went to that worship service, and uh, after the service, he got in line to, on, you know, leaving to say hello to the, to the minister there. And the woman that was right in front of him in line was obviously very distraught and upset. And when she got to the pastor, she said, you know, my dad died this week. And it's not just that he died, but he was not a member of any church. And I just don't know where he went and the pastor listened to her as she talked a little more about her anxiety and and struggle and he said and and she said you know he never joined the church and now it's too late he's dead and he said you know it seems as you talk about your dad I never knew him but he seems like he was a nice person, a good man, the kind of person who might have joined this church. And, and I think there are special circumstances where we can a- allow a person who has died to join the church. And so he prayed with that woman right then and prayed her dad into membership in the church. And she left with a burden released from her shoulders. And being next in line, I introduced myself and I said, you know, do y'all really have a, a doctrine that you can, you can let dead people join the church? And he said, no, I, I, I don't think so, but it just seemed like the right thing to do. Don't you think? Indeed. That event stands out in my memory as a Christ-filled moment. A woman in deep anxiety for a loved one received the assurance of God's love for her father and for her. And that pastor understood the sacramental meaning of membership, that it's an outward symbol of an inward reality of belonging and acceptance Contrast that with an, uh, an experience that I had. I was uh, on a job interview in Miami, and I had flown in and uh, from Chicago, and I was there just for the weekend and to meet people. And they had this uh, reception at someone's house where I was going to meet the board of directors, and so we're standing around talking and so forth, and. The, the first conversation I had was with a, a gentleman that, that said, So, Bill, what do you think about the battle for the Bible? 
And I knew right then I'd been entrapped. Uh, the Battle for the Bible, for, for those of you that were probably younger, this, it was a book that was written in the late 70s by Harold Lenzel about the inf infallibility of the Bible. And this guy wanted to know where I stood. Am I for you or against you? Is really what he wanted to know. Which camp are you going to be in? Of course, I stammered and stuttered. I hadn't even read the book. I knew about it, but I didn't want to read it. And uh, so I just sort of evaded, which he may have seen right through that. I don't, I don't know. Uh, the, the battle for the Bible. It was concerned that somehow in the desire to preserve relationships with those outside the church, with those who disagree with us, that it may lead us to ignore the core concepts and doctrine of the Bible. And we can't do that, said Harold Lenzel. We've got to hold on to the Bible. Well, it's that kind of thing that has led to 39,000 denominations since the Reformation. 39,000. Methodists being just maybe the latest to split as, as we have and have, as have so many others. Because when you start with a book that's infallible, you eventually get to interpreters of the book also being infallible, whether it's a pope or an institution. And if you don't agree with the institution's interpretation, then you gotta go. The Talmud, a Jewish interpretation, said, there's a, there's a quote that I like, it says, we don't see things as they are, we see them as we are. And I believe that is often true. Often our theology is shaped by the place we live, by the time we live in, by the family we grow up in, by the church we attend. And so today, when I think about Riverside's DNA, when I think about who we are, what I appreciate about this place is its sense of respect for each other that we try to hold on to. I think that's so important not only to respect each other, but to respect those outside these walls who are on a different pilgrimage. Humility and openness to know that we do not hold in our book of confessions or any other place all truth. And so we can say that as a church, we are searching thoughtfully together. But what about the Bible? What about the New Testament in particular? Is there a core that we need to hold on to in order to hold together, in order to be Christian? Boy, that's a dangerous question, but I'm going to try to give you just a couple of observations. I, as I read the New Testament, I think there is a core. And the core has to do with Jesus. Jesus' historical life, 
His teachings, his actions, his death, his resurrection, his being encountered through the Holy Spirit, his empowerment of faith communities that came to be known as the church. That's all through the New Testament. In Jesus, we are forgiven. We are given the gift of faith. We are offered new life. The Holy Spirit is poured out. We receive baptism and are fed at table. All in Christ. Somehow or another, that's at the core of the New Testament testimony. But then if you read what happened in the first century in the churches that had that core, there is all kind of diversity and disagreement. There are the, the Judaistic Christians who really wanted to stay in the synagogue and be mostly Jewish as well as Christian and follow the Jewish laws. There were the Hellenist, Hellenistic Christians who lived in different cultures and used different language and described God in different ways and, and wanted to connect with their culture and were far away from the Judaistic Christians. You had the apocalyptic churches that thought that Jesus was coming back any week now and we need to just kind of stop everything we're doing and wait and get ready because that's, that's what's happening. That's the defining truth. There were the charismatic Christians who thought the defining truth was the gifts of the Holy Spirit and how we use them and how they are manifested and, and, and how we shape our lives using those spiritual gifts. There were others who thought, boy, that's just out of control. And then there were others who said, we need kind of to, to, to get things organized. It was called by scholars early Catholicism. The idea that we need to, to kind of get things written down in creeds and, and sort of systematized and have some order and hierarchy. All of this diversity, some of them directly uh, uh, competing with or disagreeing with each other, and yet with a common core. So does anything go? As I read the New Testament, as I look at Jesus, one thing I see pretty clearly, and I bet you do too, is he was anything but an anarchist. He didn't want to overthrow the, the whole established order. I don't even think he wanted to start a new religion. He went to synagogue faithfully. He celebrated all the rituals of his tradition. He uh, was not wanting to jettison all of that. And yet, and yet, we see, for example, in the Gospel of John in the fifth chapter, he's going to celebrate a religious holiday of his tradition in a faithful Jewish way. And along the way, he sees a man who is lame, sitting by a pool, no one to throw him in, and so he's stuck there. And Jesus heals him. You know the story. 
And and then Jesus is roundly criticized for healing on a Sabbath, for breaking the rules, for contradicting the theology. And so over and over, Jesus lived in this balance of correct theology and grace. The grace to be open to something new that God is doing that is life-giving. That may be outside the system that has been written down. This balance between law and the rules, this may be the start of some religious wisdom, I think. Wisdom, it has been written, comes from practicing what is right and noticing what happens when it succeeds or when it fails. There's an old guy named Peter Mendenlein or something like that who has this very familiar saying, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And always in all things, charity. You've heard that. Easier said than done. For one thing, what is essential and what is non-essential? That keeps us going for a while. And then, how do you love everybody? in more than just words. I believe that Riverside has a core testimony and has been living it out in this community. And while I am proud of that, I don't want to be overly proud because I want to stay curious and open to the things that I have yet to experience or understand. And I want to do that together with you. C.S. Lewis ended a letter he wrote to a little girl in 1963 with these words. If you continue to love Jesus, nothing much bad will happen. And I hope you will always continue to do so. Amen. Amen.